Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. be seated. I don't know who put this water bottle up here, but thank you, whoever did that. Josh? Oh, I should have known. Thank you, Josh. His wife had to tell me, because he wouldn't have. Hmm? This is what we do if you're visiting. We just talk back and forth the whole time. <clears throat> Well, I'm going to pray. Well, Father, apart from your Holy Spirit, not much is going to happen this morning. The words that I say are going to either fall on deaf ears or they're just going to be quickly forgotten. Apart from your Holy Spirit, we're going to be bored with truth. Apart from your Holy Spirit, we're not going to believe or see what's actually real about the world and our place in it. Apart from your Holy Spirit, we're going to push back against this. 
Apart from your Holy Spirit, if we sing, it's not going to be with affection. It's going to be going through the motions. But with your Holy Spirit, our hearts can become captivated by your, the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us. We can leave here more at rest, with more joy and more peace. We can be strengthened in Christ in a way that nothing else can strengthen us. So we're asking that you would pour out your spirit on us as a church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, and I've been encouraging you um, to consider purchasing a Bible if you don't have one, uh, we use, I use the ESV, and um, that's what I teach from, so that's a good one to, you can follow along more easily. And the reason why we're encouraging you to bring a Bible, even more, so, even more than just um, following along like on your phones or an iPad or something, is because there's just something about having your own Bible to write in, to highlight, to um, write questions in the margins, write insights in the margins, write things that you want to come back to and think about a little bit more. Um, the, the Puritans have a bad rep uh, among a lot of people. And it's not really fair. There were some Puritans who were maybe a little bit prudish and legalistic and awkward and not very social, but a lot of the Puritans were extremely social, extremely loving. And they were nourished by Scripture in a way that's kind of lost on many of us today. Um, they actually would arrange their lives in such a way so that they could be contemplative. So they could think about Scripture frequently and deeply. Uh, and they would use things in everyday life to cue this thinking process. So they would walk into a room through a door and they would think of Jesus as a doorway into salvation. They'd be washing their hands and they'd think of Jesus as the living water, the only thing that actually... Um, quenches the spiritual thirst that we have. They would, they would use the world around them to bring thoughts of Scripture to mind to reflect on. It was a great practice. It's something that we could use and we could learn from them. And so the first step for me is just having your own home base in a Scripture. And if I, if I lost this Bible, I would be, I mean, I'd start over, but I'd be a little devastated because this has become so my own, with my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own prayers written in it, my own discoveries. Um, it's kind of like when you live in a house for a long time, every year you do another project and it becomes more your own. That's what this Bible has been for me. So I would just invite you to, to consider doing the same thing and bringing it with you and following along as we, as we teach through Ephesians. So today we're in Ephesians 3 and I'm going to be doing 1 through 13. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to start with Ephesians 3, 1 and 2, and then pause and talk about it. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, a, everybody who is not a Jewish person is a Gentile, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, that was a little tongue-in-cheek, I think when he said, assuming you've heard about this, because chances are they have. If we look in Acts 19 and 20, we see that Paul was actually in Ephesus for two years. 
And so when he went to Ephesus, he did what he usually did when he'd go to a new town. He'd go speak in the synagogue. And he would start with his own people, Jewish people who understood the Old Testament. And he was trying to show them how the Old Testament actually pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. So he would debate with them and instruct and teach how Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies about him. And after a couple months in Ephesus teaching the synagogue, they kicked him out. And he ended up probably renting a lecture hall called Tyrannus. And he would lecture there for probably several hours a day, and he did that for a couple years. And people began to believe the gospel. And so many people, the word of God spread so well through Ephesus that it actually led to almost a riot. Uh, because it was disrupting their economy. Uh, a lot of people in Ephesus made their money making little silver idols or working at the temple of Artemis. So there was this guy, and this is in Acts 19 and 20, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who was losing money because more and more people were following Jesus instead of worshiping these little idols, that he kind of rallied a mob and they ended up meeting in the amphitheater, which you can still, it's still in existence today. You can Google it and see this amphitheater is on a hillside. And it's, you know, 20,000 plus people could be in this amphitheater. And Demetrius is like rallying everybody. This guy's ruining our finances. He's ruining our tourism because not, not as many people are coming to worship Artemis, um, one of their goddesses. And he's like, he's destroying everything. We've got to do something about this. We're losing money. So they brought a couple of Paul's disciples in there, and apparently they weren't able to find him, and they started talking, and the crowd just starts you know, chanting, and it feels like it's this bloodthirsty mob that if Paul walked in there, they would just torn him to shreds. Well, Paul hears about it, and guess where he wants to go? I would want to go to the next city over, or maybe 10 cities over. Paul wanted to go right in the middle of it. He wanted to get in there, and they wouldn't let him. There's disciples that were there that were like, you cannot go in there. They will destroy you. You are not going to go in the middle of that. So Paul caused a pretty big commotion in Ephesus. So when he says in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, that's a pretty good assumption that, yes, Paul, we have heard of you. We know the deal. We know what you're about and we know what you're teaching. But what I want to really draw your attention to is in verse 1. It says, a prisoner. He describes himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul understood his imprisonment as an assignment from God. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He understood that he was sent to prison for strategic spiritual reasons. That God actually wanted him there. And this is true for us. We understand that we are in a spiritual war. We're going to learn more about this in Ephesians 6 at the end of this book. But we are in a spiritual war. And guess who our general is? Our general is Jesus. He gets to send us wherever he wants to send us. And sometimes those assignments are easier than other assignments. Some of us get some pretty difficult assignments. Paul was in, 
it would have been equivalent to like house arrest today. He was in a Roman house arrest. But prison back then was different, different than prison today. Because back then you wouldn't be sent to prison like for 40 or 50 years. You didn't, you didn't stay there for these long sentences. If you were in prison, you were awaiting something. You were either awaiting a trial or awaiting an execution. So Paul had this existential doom and gloom just burdening him. It wasn't a light and fun stay. It wasn't easy time. It was very difficult time for a lot of reasons. And you would think, I mean, if I were Paul, I would probably start by spending time feeling sorry for myself and complaining to God about this and being annoyed that I end up in prison. I'm trying to do the work of the kingdom, and now I'm in this Roman house arrest prison. They're probably going to end up executing me. He had to know that. I'd be feeling pretty bad for myself, but what does Paul do? He gets to work. He sees that Jesus has sent me here for a reason, and all I have to do is discover why he sent me. So he does a few things. What does Paul do productively for the kingdom of God while he's in prison? The first thing is he writes the Bible. Not the whole Bible, but four books of the Bible. He's in this Roman prison. He, doesn't, he wants to encourage different you know, churches that he started. So he writes what we call, what are known today as the prison epistles. And that's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. These are books that Paul writes while in prison. That's a pretty productive use of time. I mean, we're still learning today from one of the things that Paul did while he was in prison. Another thing that happened is if you look in Philippians, um, which is another book he wrote while he was in this Roman prison, you see that he's saying, don't feel bad about me and be in prison. Don't worry about that because the entire imperial guard has heard the gospel of Jesus because I'm in prison. I'm getting to speak to Roman soldiers. Are you kidding me? This is amazing. Because when you're in prison, you know you have to have a soldier that's guarding you. And imagine being the soldier the first day that you realize your assignment is to guard Paul. And you walk in there and Paul's like pacing around the room like, okay, I wanna, what can I do for your kingdom, Lord? How can you use me? I know you're here for a reason. I know I'm here for a reason, so you have work for me to do. And you look over and you see this guard walk and you're like, ah, oh, what's your name? You know what he's going to hear. He's going to share the gospel with anybody around him. So then that guy would rotate. Another guard would come in. And guess what that guard gets to hear? The same exact thing. And probably, probably a lot of Roman soldiers came into the kingdom because Paul was looking for something productive to do while he was in prison. And finally, we see that Paul says in Philippians that because of his imprisonment, many Christians were emboldened to share the gospel. He's like, great. If me being in prison makes you braver, that's fantastic. Because boldness and courage is one of those things that actually catches. It's contagious. When you see someone that's brave, it's contagious. It's like the owner of the Boston Red Sox in Moneyball said to Billy Bean, he said, the first guy through the wall is always bloody, always. 
And Paul's like, I'll be the first guy through the wall. If that emboldens everybody else to do something new and to live for the kingdom, fine. I volunteer for that. Tertullian, who was, um, he was an early, he's a first century theologian in Carthage in northern Africa. He was credited with saying to the Roman Empire, go ahead and mow us down. Because our blood is the, the blood of the martyrs is the, the seeds of the kingdom, the seeds of the church. So he said, kill us, and more will come up. And that's what happened often. I don't know if it happens as much today, but back then it was certainly true that when someone stood in front of a lion and bravely and valiantly said, send them, it emboldened other believers to say, they really believe this. This is, it becomes more real to them, and more and more people are bold with their faith. So that's what Paul said. That's another thing that he did when he was in prison. He used the assignment well. And the lesson for us is there's kingdom work for you to do right where you're at. Whatever your circumstance, wherever you work, wherever you spend your time, Whoever you're around, there's stuff to be done that only you can do. Nobody else is there. You're there. And Paul didn't waste any opportunities. Let's look at three verses three. We'll read three through eight. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That, what that means is there's a place at the table for everybody. The kingdom is for everybody. And we see this even in the Old Testament. Even when God called Abraham to start this new nation, he said it's for the purposes of blessing the entire world. It's not just going to be one particular little nation. You're going to be a nation that brings this message to the entire world. So it was always there, but now it's more clear than ever that everybody is included as a son or daughter or an heir in this kingdom. Everybody's invited. That was a mystery that's been veiled by God since the beginning of creation. Verse 7, of this gospel, what Jesus did to accomplish that through his death and resurrection, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There was nothing amazing. There was nothing special. There was nothing unusual about Paul. What made him special was what God gave him in this noble assignment of teaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to people. There's something about gurus that human beings are just drawn to. We love people who have 
you know, kind of figured stuff out on their own. Uh, when I was in Strongsville, I went, I'm going to admit this first time in public right now. I can't even believe it. I was, maybe am, I was a Dr. Phil fan. You still like me? I, I was a Dr. Phil fan. I was a Dr. Phil fan. I kind of still like him. He had that just Texas wisdom, and he has these axioms that are just, they're clever, you know, he could fix people's lives, and he would tell people how it is. And so when I lived in, um, this is the early 2000s, so I'm qualifying it. When I lived in Strongsville, I might, might have watched his show every now and again, and I found out that he was going to be in the Cleveland area. So I was like, are you kidding me? I called the number. I'm like, is there any tickets available? Yes, boom, I got it. I'm going, definitely. I'm buying the ticket. I got the ticket. I think it was actually at the Convocation Center in Cleveland. I show up. It's like, for whatever reason, I, I don't know. This is just a fact. It was like 95% women there. And I, was, I had my journal. I was getting pumped. I was excited, too. I walked in there, and I, the, the spot was like in the middle. Of, it was like a church women's ministry. I have no idea. It was this church women's ministry. They were all there watching Dr. Phil, and I was in the middle of them. And I was getting pumped with them. I was giving high fives. I was writing stuff down. Because there's so, and I went down with him to get his autograph. I didn't wait in line long enough. Well, not that bad. But I, wasn't, I was excited for it because we get excited about people who seem to have figured something out. And then we end up kind of treating them like gurus. Um, <clears throat> there's a show on Netflix that I think it's called I'm Not Your Guru. And it's about Tony Robbins. And he says he's not a guru, but he, he acts like one. I mean, he sells these venues out, and then he, he claims to be able to fix people's lives in a conversation. I mean, he all but said that and then tried to demonstrate that. Um, he can turn things around immediately. He stumbled upon the secret wisdom. We love gurus. Paul was not having any of that. He, he, he claimed to be just a normal, average person who was given a noble assignment by God. Verse 3 says, this mystery was made known to me. I didn't figure it out. It was made known to me. Verse 7 and 8 again, let me just read that. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Grace, unmerited favor, unmerited help, unmerited insight. It was given to me by the working of his power, not mine. So to me, though I am very least of all the saints, saints is another word for Christians. He said, I'm, I'm the very least of all the Christians in the world. Even so, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we can think of grace being extended to us by God in two different ways. There's salvation grace, which means that when you surrender your life to Christ and you say, I'm entrusting myself to God, I see that Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for my sins, and was raised back to life so that I too can defeat death and, have, and live forever with Christ. And, with other people, with other believers. When you do that, God extends salvation grace to you and you become part of the family. You actually, this has famously been said by I don't know who, 
It's not that you, a bad person becomes good. It, it's a dead person becomes alive. It's more than just becoming a nice person. You actually become a new creation, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians or 2 Corinthians or somewhere in the Bible. It's in there. <laughs> you become new. But then there's another extension and kind of even intensity of that grace that God extends. Once you are in his family, he empowers you with a spiritual gift that is meant to be used in the church. It's meant to be used in the kingdom. It's meant for the common purpose, the common good of everyone who's part of the church. So I want you to turn, if you, can, if you have your Bibles, or you can just follow, you can just listen. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 11. It's just a few books to the left of Ephesians. It's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. Now, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12 is just a list of different spiritual gifts, different ways that God empowers you to do good to his church. And then in verse 11 it says, all these, which is all these gifts, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you become part of the kingdom and then God looks at each of us individually and he empowers you with some spiritual gift particular to you to use for the good of the church. And God chooses. He doesn't take requests. And part of maturing and growing and becoming more fruitful as a Christian is accepting the gift that he's given you, accepting this spiritual gift, because you're typically going to want it to be everything else other than what he's given you. And the more you learn just to ease into it and accept what he's gifted you to do, the more joy and contentment and fruit you see in your life, the more meaningful your life becomes. And this is true for me, too. I uh, was many years ago sitting around, uh, sitting in a circle with a group of other people who were going into ministry. And everyone, they're like, what's your, what's your spiritual gift? So we're all sharing our spiritual gift. And when you talk to people who are going into ministry, everyone's going to say preaching. Everybody. Everybody says they need a microphone. That's just how it is. Except for me. I actually said, I don't want to preach, I never will preach, I will never do anything where I have to talk in front of more than five people, that's definitely not my gift because God knows I cannot do that. And that was what God called me to do. And it wasn't until I stopped fighting that, that I actually leaned into it and accepted it. And that's when a variety of doors were opened for me. When you become part of God's kingdom, he extends grace to you and gives you an incredibly noble task. And every task in the kingdom is noble. Every one of them. And it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how influential you are. When people say things like, man, if this celebrity would just become a Christian, they would do so much good for the kingdom. They have like a million Instagram followers. It's just not how God works. He doesn't need a million Instagram followers. He can use anyone in any way that he wants. 
He doesn't measure things the way that we measure things. So it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how influential you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. There's some very compelling evidence that at least one or two of the disciples was probably 13 or 14 years old. And they were one of his disciples. So if you're in here today, it doesn't matter how old you are. God will use you exactly where you are. He will give you incredibly noble responsibilities. And then he'll give you the power to do it. When, you, when God gives you a spiritual gift, your human limitations become irrelevant. And a lot of you know my story. I've talked about this a lot because it, it's kind of bragging about God, but I had this, you know, this, um, this thing that would happen to me when I would try to speak out loud for, you know, in school, and for a decade it was like this, and I, couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Physically, I couldn't speak out loud in front of people. And God decided that he would be most glorified if he went right through that weakness and used that very thing for his purposes, speaking in front of people. Uh, you know Moses, too, when he was called to be a leader, he said to God, wrong guy because I'm not eloquent with speech and um, I'm slow of speech and I can't do this. God will use your very point of weakness often to show himself strong. And then there's King David. In 1 Samuel 16, Saul just died. And God says to Samuel, get over it. It's time to move on. It's time to pick the next king, so I want you to go to Jesse's house. Goes to Jesse's house. And God says it's going to be one of his sons. The first son shows up, and Samuel's like, oh, okay, I know what you're thinking, God. Boom, yeah, this guy, this guy, this is king material right here. This is the one. And God says, you're looking at the wrong thing. He's not the one. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Samuel's like, all right, um, Jesse, you have any other kids? Seven of his sons, he walks by Samuel, and every single one of them, God's like, nope, 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 nope. Finally, Samuel's like, uh, God said it was going to be one of your kids. you have any other sons anywhere else? He's like, yeah, well, he's the youngest and he's with the sheep. He's a shepherd, which isn't a very noble thing back then. And Samuel's like, uh, go get him. Brings him before Samuel and God's like, there he is. That's the one. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how influential you are. It doesn't matter what experience you have. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much money you have. When God gives you a spiritual gift, nothing on earth is going to stop that from being fruitful if you'll just avail yourself to him and to that gift. What this means for us, nobody is irrelevant in God's church. Nobody. Everybody plays a role. Everybody's on the field. There's no spectators. And there's different ways for you to discover your role. You know, there is one thing that you can do, the spiritual gift inventory, where you're like writing down your answers and, and filling in 
questions and then you, you count up how many are for this gift and how many are for that gift. And I actually think that's a little artificial for my taste and it, 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 you usually end up knowing how to bend the answer toward the thing that you want your gift to be. So I'm not sure actually how effective those are. It's actually your responsibility to discover your gift. It's not other people's responsibility to tell you what your gift is and to make sure you're using it. That's your responsibility. And the church is a place where you can practice and exercise and discover, but it's not my job to tell you what you're... I have no idea. You have to begin playing with this. Um, Romans 12.3 says, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So each one of you individually, God has assigned something and a measure of faith, and it's your job to not think of yourself as anything more than that, but to discover what that is. It's your personal responsibility to be proactive in that. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, fan into flame the gift that's been given you. It's your responsibility. Use it. It's not somebody else's job to make sure you're using your gift. That's your job. And the best way to discover it is to start getting plugged in and pay attention to how God begins to use you for the, God, for the common good, which is the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. And there's all sorts of different gifts mentioned. There's utterance of wisdom, which means that when you're talking with something, with someone about something difficult, you begin to say things that feel reasonable, that relieve the pressure from this person who is honestly seeking insight from God, that feels peace-inducing. Like, ah, oh, that feels right. They just feel lighter. If they're honestly seeking God, if you have wisdom, you speak and they feel lighter. Or word of knowledge. It's not like you get a word of knowledge in the middle of a sermon, you need to come up here and like take the, the mic from me. Word of knowledge will come out conversationally first where you're talking with people and interacting with someone and you have some extra insight about this person or their situation or some flood of verses just comes to mind and you're able to figure out how to say it gently and kindly in a way that just bring, brings light and clarity to the confusion. Or giving, which is releasing your resources into the, into the kingdom without strings attached. And you do so very generously. Or hospitality, which is creating a non-anxious place, a welcoming environment that's delightful to the senses, that puts people at ease, that makes people open up and talk more honestly about their lives. Like there's just a whole list of ways that God gifts us and your job is to discover how he's gifted you. And as J.I. Packer says, as I was saying, that sample of giftings, you might have noticed that that's, those are things that we're all supposed to be doing. Because every gift is a discipline of discipleship. Every single spiritual gift is something that all of us should, should be doing. You just do it a little better. And if you have the gift, then you're... you're a little bit more impactful in that particular area. It's kind of a neat deal how God's done that. So in the same way that Paul says that God's grace was given to him in the form of his assignment um, to preach, it's a good starting point for us to decide what is it that God's given us to do or discover what is it that God's given us to do. If you want to write these down, here's a couple of places you can look. Romans 12, 
uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. There's other places too, but really the lion's share of are in there. And, and also remember, these aren't exhaustive lists. I don't think these are exhaustive spiritual gift, gift inventories. They're samplings. All right, let's wrap it up with 9 through 13. It says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What I want to land on here is what we see in this passage is that God's plan is to eliminate division in the church, ultimately everywhere, and to unite everyone and everything together in Christ. And he's using the church to give a foretaste of that reality. So where, where the entire rest of the world out there might be getting more and more divided the church can actually be a light in the darkness, a place of hope where we are getting more and more united. The walls of division have been broken down. The walls of hostility we saw a couple weeks ago have been broken down by Christ. There, is no, there are no more walls of division between us and between God, between us and one another and between us and God. They've been obliterated. And this is, a, this is the mystery that's been revealed. And in 1 Peter 1, it actually says that even the angels long to see the mystery that God is unveiling. And guess how they are to find out? Guess how the spiritual beings in this world who are all around us, guess how God has determined for them to discover how the mystery has been revealed? Through the church. We are the ones that are telling of this mystery and acting out this mystery in ways that nobody else on earth is. And the church gets a bad rap for division. And I don't know if it's actually fair. Because I've seen God's Spirit bring a lot of different types of people together in some pretty dramatic ways. In India with Hindu, um, the Hindu religion, and India is a religious state, so everyone's Hindu. There's a caste system, and there's high caste and low caste. And then even below the low caste, there's delete. And delete are people who are less than human. They're considered to be like animals. And I've worshipped in an Indian church in India, in Rajasthan, where delete kids are next to high caste people. And they're being taken in by these high caste people and adopted by them. And they're serving one another in love, loving one another. And all these castes are completely obliterated when you get inside the church. The church family's different than everywhere else. And it's compelling for people in India. And at least for a while, a couple years, there was, a, there was revival that was just shooting through the mountains of Rajasthan because of the caste systems being eliminated. It's beautiful. Times Square Church and 51st Street, you can see it almost exaggerated. 
I've worshipped there several times, and you go there, and the place is just packed. And one time I was sitting behind someone who looked like maybe they were homeless next to someone who was apparently very wealthy and probably from the finance district and was up there worshiping, and they were hugging, and these over 100 nations represented in Times Square Church. One church, over 100 nations in the middle of Times Square, worshiping, serving, living life together, being a part of each other's community groups. It is happening in the church in ways that it doesn't anywhere else. And I'm hopeful it can happen at our little church right here. And we can put on display the manifold wisdom of God as we grow in diversity. Not Jew and Gentile diversity, but diversity in every other way that you could imagine. We don't have a ton of cultural diversity in Worcester, but we do have a little and it should be represented in here. And there's other ways that we can come together as people who are different than one another. It can be white collar and blue collar, young and old, rich and poor. Republican and Democrat, the kingdom supersedes everything. Everything. We always say you ought to be friends with someone that you would never be friends with if it wasn't for Christ. Because you know how the world chooses friends? It says, what will you do for me? The church chooses friends by saying, what can I do for you? We're not picky. We don't hang with just people we like. We hang with people that God has called us to love, which includes everybody, everybody in the church, everybody in his kingdom. And the way this is going to happen will be explained by Pastor Al next week when he digs into, (laughs) no pressure, but he digs into Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, because the way that this happens is we don't start a, we're not going to start like um, some type of, unity rally that's not how you become united together with other people at the soul level the way that that happens the way this happens the way that God planned it is love is that you are so filled in experiencing the love of God so dramatically that you can't help but love everybody around you that's God's plan that's God's plan So as we wrap up this next week, as Pastor Al brings to an end this first half of the book of Ephesians, you're going to see that the answer to all of this, the way that all this is going to happen is through an immeasurable love of God flowing through us for one another. It's the only way. It's the only way. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.